drew my attention to the fact that uh, last week we actually started our third year uh, teaching at the president's class. And so that's, uh, it's been a pretty fast two years. We've enjoyed it, and it's time has flown by, hasn't it? Okay, let's look at Daniel chapter 5, and we are introduced to a new king, and you can see right there at the beginning of uh, verse 1 of Daniel 5, the man's name is Belshazzar, new king ruling in Babylon. Now, what do we know about this man, Belshazzar? We know this, that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar has died, and Belshazzar uh, has taken over as the ruler of Babylon. Twenty-three years have lapsed between chapters 4 and chapter 5. And after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's wife marries the leading general in the Babylonian army, and that general adopts his wife and Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. So when Belshazzar becomes king, he actually becomes co-ruler with his stepfather. And his stepfather, the general, takes over the administration of the kingdom, and he takes the throne. Belshazzar takes the throne, and he becomes sort of the public image. And so that's Belshazzar. Now, chapter 5 opens with a feast. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast. Now, the reason he's celebrating is that Babylon has just come through a battle, an invasion, if you will, from the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, has become the next dominant power in the world at this time. And so they decide to uh, attempt an overthrow of Babylon, and they invade. But it appears that Babylon is successful in defending the city. And the reason is because of the structure of Babylon. They have, a, they have walls, city walls, that are 87 feet thick. Thick. And that makes the city nearly impenetrable. They have towers that reach 100 feet high, and so they can see, they have watchtowers where the guards can look out and see invasions and armies approaching from miles away. Plus, they have bronze gates, very heavy gates, that you just can't uh, you know, bang in with, uh, with uh, ram and ramrods. They don't, they don't budge. Plus, they have a moat around the entire city of Babylon filled with alligators. And so, as the Medo-Persian Empire invades the city, uh, they're not successful. And so they retreat, and the king throws a celebration. So that's the story. He's celebrating a victory of battle. So look at... Uh, Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> Notice the size of the guest list, this big party that he throws. Belshazzar the king made a great feast. Notice that word great. This is a big one. For a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence 
of the thousand. Now, these are the most important people of his kingdom, and these are the men probably who have financed the war, the nobles, and who have actually sent people into battle. And the King James says that he drank wine before the thousand. The version I'm using says he drank it in the presence of the thousands, but before the thousands seems to indicate that he is on some sort of platform where every eye can see him and where he can see everybody who enters into the great throne room and where he can receive accolades. And they, they make a toast to the king, King Belshazzar. And he's up there and he goes, hey, you know, and they do this. And, and he can recognize his nobles and so forth and make announcements. And so that's the setting and that's the size of the party. Now, the next thing we see Belshazzar sin, we see a sacrilege that takes place. Verse 2 says, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, meaning the temple of God, which had been in Jerusalem. Now, he calls for these vessels that have been captured by Nebuchadnezzar years before. Now, we see a reference to this back in Daniel chapter 1. So I want you to turn there just for a second and look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, this is how the book of Daniel opens. And it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, watch this next phrase with some of the articles of the house of God, that's the temple, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So these are the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar captured. Now with that, go back to Daniel chapter 5, and we see that Belshazzar, his son, desecrates the vessels. Now, how does he do this? Look what it says at the end of verse 2. It says, he called for the vessels. Now, look at this phrase. That, so that, in order that, the king and his lords, his wives, plural, and his concubines might drink from them from the sacred vessels. Now, here we see an extended list of the guests, don't we? Doesn't only include his lords, but it includes his wives and his concubines, and this is going to be one of those wild parties that last late into the night. And what happens, we believe, is that Belshazzar gets drunk. Now, let me tell you why we believe that. Look at the first word in Verse 2. Notice the phrase, while. Do you see that? While he tasted. That is a word that deals with time. The King James says something else, though, doesn't it? It doesn't say while. What does it say? Whiles, plural. <laughs> now, why do you think it says that? Because the writer wants you to realize that we're talking about over a long period of time. Maybe after several hours while he's taking drink after drink after drink after drink, suddenly he gets so drunk 
Then he says, hey, why don't we just bring in those vessels that my father captured from the temple of Wall, 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 drink from them. Why don't we do that? So as he loses his senses, he commits this act of sacrilege. And so look what happens in verse 3. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine, number one, and two, praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stones. And so the whole crowd just grabs these vessels and they start drinking and they begin to praise their gods that are made out of silver, bronze, iron, and wood, stone, in other words, idols. So we have, we have the size of the party, we have the sin that takes place in the party, the sacrilege, and now a very unusual sight, an event, a very spooky event takes place. Look at verse 5. In the same hour, when they're all drunk, the fingers of a man's hands appeared. Suddenly, just fingers start appearing of a man's hand without an arm. It's like something that would come out of a Stephen King movie. Only it's real. It's not some, it's not like a pink elephant that you see, you know, because you're a drunk. It's an actual hand. And look what it says. And that hand wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. So here this hand begins to write on the wall, and thus we have what many preachers call this chapter the handwriting on the wall. And it takes place next to the lampstand, next to the king's throne, on this white plastered wall so everyone can see it. Now, the amazing thing is that this exact location where the handwriting takes place was discovered by an archaeologist named Colway last century. He literally unearthed Belshazzar's palace and was able to identify the throne room. In other words, when they did the excavation, they found the throne room 173, 173 feet long and 56 feet wide. It's right where this royal banquet took place. And the amazing thing was that there was a long wall. Now listen to this. Next to the entrance, where there was a niche in the wall where the king's throne sat. And that wall was made of white plaster, and it was still in existence last century. They found the exact wall where this writing took place. And it says this at the end of verse 5. Look what it says. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. 
and the king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him so that, in other words, he became white as, as a goat. His, his bloated red face and his red nose changed. And his, you know, his countenance, he, before he was happy, ah, let's drink to the gods, you know. And suddenly, it's like he sees a ghost. So that the joints, this is a great statement, of his hips were loosened. Now, some of you who need to have hip surgery, this would be the solution to your problem. <laughs> Just see a hand that was suddenly without an arm writing on a wall. <clears throat> and look at this. Yeah, this is natural chiropractic. And look at this. And his knees knocked <laughs> against each other. So what the writer is describing is that this guy is scared to death. He's scared out of his wits. And this shows you how God can get your attention. Now, we can only envision what takes place, but in my mind's eye, I imagine at that point when this handwriting starts, when this hand starts writing on the wall and everyone sees it, the, mu the musicians quit playing. Wouldn't you say that? I think the music stops. The dancing halts. The goblets that are being lifted to people's lips stop in midair. Some probably fall right onto the marble floor. Women faint. The king acts like Barney Fife. I mean, that's how Barney Fife acted, isn't it? Remember when Barney would have to arrest some crook? He'd say, you're under arrest now. Remember how he used to do that? Because he was nervous. And that's how the king is. The conversations cease. And every eye looks up and sees the hand without an arm next to the king's throne writing something. And I believe at that point you could actually hear a pin drop except for the king's knees that are hitting against each other. Now, the Babylonians believed in what they called dark omens. When something like this that was frightening took place and masses saw it, they said that that was an indication of something very uh, sad and uh, bad news was about to arrive. And so when they see this, we suspect that they, that they know something foreboding is about to happen. But notice how God gets these people's attention. This is how he does it, through some miraculous means. And God has ways to get our attention and uh, sometimes it's a pain in our side, and our whole countenance changes. Sometimes it's a twitch, whatever it is. Sometimes it's bad news. He can get our attention just as easy as he can get these people's attention. But then finally, the silence is broken, because look at verse 7. It says, the king <clears throat> cried aloud. He wants to get some conclusion, some understanding on this matter. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing, now it's right on the wall now, the hand has now disappeared, the writing's on the wall, 
tell me its interpretation, and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple. That means will be made a person of influence. And have a chain of gold around his neck shall receive a royal medallion. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, how's that for an incentive to get the right interpretation? Now, why the third ruler? Well, because you have Belshazzar, you have his general father, and they're co-rulers. This person who gives the right interpretation will be the third ruler. So verse 8 says, Now all the king's wise men came. Notice all of the wise men came. And I imagine that when they come in and they get around the throne, everybody in the banquet hall, all thousand people probably move in to hear what they're going to say. But they could not read the writing. In other words, they couldn't understand it. They looked up there and they said, I don't know what that means. Or make known to the king its interpretation. So once again, we see the wise men fail. That's sort of a reoccurrent theme in the book. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. Notice that. Before he was troubled, now he's greatly troubled. And his countenance was changed. In other words, it goes from bad to worse. And his lords were astonished. They're saying, what's going to happen now? No one knows what to do. Uh, people probably start murmuring. And then... Verse 10, someone comes to the rescue. Look who it is. The queen. Look at that, the queen. Now, this is not his wife. This is the queen mother. This is Nebuchadnezzar's wife. This is Belshazzar's mother, and she was ruling as the queen mother at this point. Notice what it says. The queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came to the banquet room. In other words, she's hurt. She's not in there. She's sober. But she hears a commotion going on, and so she decides to come in. She inquires, finds out what's going on. And the queen spoke in verse 10 saying, Long live the king. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. So she says, you know, don't be upset over this whole matter. And look what she says to do. Look at verse 9. Uh, verse, uh, verse 11. She says this. There is a man in your kingdom in whom, the spirit, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in this man. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him. Now, notice how she puts that in there. Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this David, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Now, evidently, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, Daniel 
has lost his position as the chief of the Chaldeans or the chief of the uh, magicians. We don't know exactly why, but remember, 23 years have passed. It could be that uh, that would make Daniel in his mid-70s by this time. So that's important that you understand that. Could be that Daniel has retired from government. We're not certain. But we do know this, that the present king doesn't know anything about Daniel, although he was his father's chief advisor. And look what it says in verse uh, 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. So they round up Daniel. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? Who is one of the captives from Judah, who my father, the king, brought from Judah? This man's shocked when he sees Daniel. Now, we don't know why he's shocked. Maybe it's because of Daniel's age. He wasn't expecting somebody this old. We don't know. Maybe it was Daniel's countenance. Maybe there was something special about Daniel because he asked this question in somewhat of a, a state of shock. Maybe he looked great compared to the king because one of the themes throughout this book is how Daniel is sort of an excellent person. And here you have the king with his red nose, bloated face, blurry eyes, bloodshot, you know, uh, scared out of his wits. And here comes Daniel walking into the room and his eyes are bright, his countenance is great. He looks like a man about half his age and this guy is absolutely shocked at this guy, Daniel. And he says in verse 14, I've heard of you. Of course he did. It's like a king talking. It's like I've known about you all my life. In reality, when did he find out? About 10 minutes ago. Yeah, he's a politician. I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me and they, uh, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you give interpretation and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck. You will receive the medallion and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. And now Daniel speaks for the first time. Then Daniel answered and he said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. I don't want your money. I don't want your honor. And give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel is now going to speak, but before he gives the interpretation, he preaches a sermon. And look what he does in verse 18. He says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Now notice that the first thing he says is that your father's kingdom came from God. Now, if you would have asked Nebuchadnezzar how he got his kingdom, he would have said, originally, I fought for it and I won it. It was only at the end of his life that he realized otherwise. And so 
Daniel preaches that first thing. Your father's kingdom came from God. And then look what he says, verse 19. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all people's nations' languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and they fed him grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and he appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now that's the theme of the whole book. We all agree with that, don't we? That's the theme, that God is the one who rules in the kingdoms of men. And of course, that's what chapter 4 was all about. Now he applies his sermon. That's his sermon, now he applies it. But you... You, his son, you think you would have learned the lesson. You knew about your dad. You knew when he was out there eating that grass, there was something wrong with him, even though you were a little kid. You know, you should have learned the lessons. But you, his son, verse 22, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Now remember, as Daniel's saying this, a thousand people are gathered around. He has a captive audience. They're all listening. They're stretching forth their ears. The magicians are all there. They're all hearing this message. And so in one sense, it's a put-down. He's embarrassing Belshazzar in front of all of his guests. But uh, he's teaching a lesson that if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you're bound to repeat them in the future. And Belshazzar has not learned that. So that's what he hasn't done. He hasn't humbled his heart. Now look at verse 23. What we have is Daniel now lists Belshazzar's sins. And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've done the same thing that your father did. You've welled up inside with, with pride. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. These were the sacred vessels. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've committed sacrilege. Now, why do you think God's so upset over that? So upset that he would grab their attention with a spooky hand writing on the wall. Why is God upset that they drank from these cups? What's the big deal? Now listen. Sacrilege is when you desecrate something that's holy. God has set certain people and certain things apart for his service. And when he does those, he does that, he proclaims them to be holy. He takes these people and he takes these things out of the arena of the common, 
out of the realm of the ordinary for his service. And when he does that, they become holy. They're not holy in and of themselves, but they become holy because he's chosen them for a certain purpose. Now take example the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. There's nothing holy about a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice. They are common, ordinary items, but God says that when we take them as an act of worship, that becomes a holy experience. And that's why it is so dangerous when you take the Lord's Supper unworthily. When you do that, you perform an act of sacrilege, and the scripture says, and that's why some of you are sickly, and that's why some of you have even died prematurely, Paul said, because you've committed an act of sacrilege. Maybe you didn't realize it, but that's the case. Now look at this book. That book is made of paper and ink. Nothing holy about paper and ink. Common, ordinary things. But God has breathed into that paper and ink. And he says that contains my word. And now it's called a holy Bible. Now why is that a holy Bible? Because that book has been set apart for God's use. And people who have desecrated it and tried to destroy it, God ends up destroying them. Look at the church. Church is made up of people, ordinary people just like us. But God says, if you defile this temple, the church, then I will destroy you. Him that tries to destroy this temple, he I will destroy. And so because the church is holy, it's consecrated, and there are repercussions when you act in a sacrilegious way toward the church. That's why it's very dangerous to be murmuring and doing all these things in the church because God takes it seriously, and you see how serious it is. Now, how about God's name? If I say the word God, that's just a word. These people worship gods. If I say Jehovah, they're just made of letters. But God says, my name is holy. And what does he say about his name? He says that he will not hold him guiltless. Listen, he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So when we take God's name in vain and we use it in a light fashion, we've committed an act of sacrilege and God will hold us responsible. He will not hold us guiltless. Well, guess what? Belshazzar has committed an act of uh, sacrilege and he is not guiltless. He's responsible for his act. So look at verse 23. He says, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine of silver. You've drunk wine from them. And the next thing you've done is you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see or hear or know. In other words, you've served idols. And then finally, in verse 23, and the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So that's Daniel's sermon. You know, and it's only in two or three verses. Boy, that's a pretty powerful sermon, isn't it? And they all listen. 
He wants them to understand why God is now going to judge everyone in that room. Because everyone in that room has committed sacrilege. Now he'll come to his interpretation. Look at verse 24, Daniel's interpretation. Then, he says, now watch, then is a word that deals with chronological time. Because you've done those things in verse 22 and 23, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, from God, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Meany, meany, tekel, eupharsin. Meany, meany, tekel, eupharsin. Now this is the interpretation. Look at verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Meany. Now what you need to look back, look at in verse 25 is that meany is mentioned twice, isn't it? So he, this, is some, this is a word that he wants to emphasize. He actually said this word two times. And the word means to number. To number. So when he said meany, it means to number, and here's the interpretation. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. In other words, your days are numbered. Now, when you hear that statement, your days are numbered, what do you think about? You say your days are numbered, that means what? Not much longer, that's right. It's very specific in the sense that it means if a person's days are numbered, that means there's been a certain amount of days allotted to that person's life. And every one of our days, now listen, are numbered. God has put a number on your life. And your days are numbered. You have so much time to live, no more, no less. And God's placed a number on the length of your life, and that's why it's absolutely important not to waste your time and do all these sinful things because there's coming a day when your number is up. That's where we get the phrase, your number is up, right from that verse. Your number is up. How about if God said to you today, your number's up. Would you say, I lived a significant life? I've done something with the days that, that I had to serve the Lord? Or your days been basically serving yourself? That's why the psalmist says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now look at this second word, verse 27. Tekel, which is the word meaning lacking. Second word, tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now the phrase weighed in the balances means that you've been put on a scale, you've been put on God's scale, 
and you don't measure up. In other words, your number is up, and you don't measure up. That's a frightening thing, isn't it? To know that your number's up, and when God has put you on his scale, you don't measure up. You don't measure up regarding salvation. Now, you know, when I, before I became a, a follower of Jesus, I thought that when I died, I'd stand before God, and there would be scales. And that's what every lost person believes, isn't it? We all believe that we're, God's going to put all of our good works on one side and all of our bad works on the other side, and somehow our good works are going to outweigh the bad works. And he's going to say, oh, it's good to have you into my kingdom. Come on in. Come on in. But guess what? It's not how it works. See, what God did for Belshazzar is he measures him based on verses 23 and 24 on the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, commandment number one. How do you measure up, Bell? Oh, you've been worshiping your gods, okay. Number two, you shall not bow down to any graven images. Oh, what have you been doing? Stones, wood? How do you measure up, Belshazzar? You've been put on God's scales, and you've not measured up. Now, how about if God put his Ten Commandments on one side, and he puts you on the other, and he asks you how you measured up? Would he say you measured up or you don't measure up? Well, none of us in the room would measure up, would we? That's why we need to throw ourselves upon God's mercy. That's why Jesus died on the cross. The punishment that we deserved for breaking his law, he took. And all of our sin was placed on his account. And because he kept God's law perfectly, he places his righteousness on our account. And now, when God puts his law on one side and he puts us and the righteousness of Christ on the other side, we do measure up. But Belshazzar doesn't measure up. Let me ask you, do you measure up? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? How about if you had to step on God's scales today? Would you measure up for salvation? How about for service? You measure up to what he wants you to do? Now look at this last word. Perez. Perez. Oh, wait a second. There's something wrong here. Wait a second. Perez? That's not the word, is it? Look in verse 25. What's the last word? You farson. Can't Daniel read? It says you farson, not Perez. What's going on here? Well, let's look back at 25, and let's look at that word you farson. Now, in the Aramaic language, you see the first letter, U, is a prefix to this word. And it means and. And. So actually, it reads meaning, meaning, tickle, and. There's one more word. <laughs> and look at the end of you, Farson. You see the I-N ending? That's a suffix. And that means it's a plural word. And. Farson is the plural of Perez. And so it reads, meeny, meeny, tickle, and Perez, and Perez, and Perez, and Perez. That's what it means here. So look what he says, Perez. The word means divided. And because it's a plural, it means divided more than once. Meeny, your time's up. Tickle, you don't measure up. And third, 
Your kingdom has been divided, divided. Look at that. Your kingdom has been divided, divided. Between who? Given to first division, the Medes. Second division, the Persians. That's the message, king. Your number's up, you don't measure up, and your kingdom is going to be divided. Now, the amazing thing that we know from history, from secular history, is that even as Daniel was speaking, the Median armies was going under that 87-foot-thick wall in Babylon because the Euphrates River ran up into Babylon and divided Babylon right in half. And the water went under the wall. And so the soldiers went down into the water, held their breath, swam 90 feet, and came up inside of Babylon. And within an hour, within one hour, Babylon had been captured and Babylon had fallen. That fast. So look what it says in verse 29. Now we get this post interpretation activity. Now, Belshazzar doesn't know that's going on while Daniel's speaking. He's gotten his interpretation. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with the purple, even though he didn't want it. And they put the medallion, the chain of gold, around his neck. And he made a proclamation concerning him that he, Daniel, should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So the king makes Daniel the third ruler. Why does he do that, you think? Well, I guess he's made the promise in front of a thousand people, so he has to do it. Or maybe he hopes that if he makes Daniel the tri-regent of Babylon, maybe God will spare his kingdom. God won't come against Daniel if he's the king. We don't know why he does it, but he makes Daniel the third ruler of the kingdom. But it's too little, too late, because Daniel will be the third ruler of this kingdom for less than one hour. How's that for a short reign? Because the army's coming under, <laughs> under the wall and is going to destroy the whole, take capture the whole city. So Daniel's reign as the co-ruler is very short-lived. Now look at these last two verses, verses 30 and 31, and here's where we'll, we will end. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, meaning the Babylonians, the Iraqis, as we would say today, was slain. His number was up. And Darius the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And thus begins the Medo-Persian Empire. And thus fulfills the prophecy of the vision that God originally gave to Nebuchadnezzar when he gave him the vision of that big statue, the head of gold, Babylon, the chest and two arms of silver.
that which would defeat Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, and thus in verses 30 and 31, that prophecy was fulfilled, thus proving the theme of the book of Daniel, that God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he chooses. Lord, we thank you for this word and help us to uh, take these lessons with us. Do we measure up or our days up? Oh, Lord, have we lived for you? Do we measure up for salvation and for your service? Lord, help us to realize that uh, we don't control anything. Help us to consider that our days are numbered so that we can incline into your vision, into your wisdom. We can live for you all for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.